Hello, new podcast. We don't have to have a set intro. We're just like cool with whatever. We're like the cool girlfriend who just like doesn't really care if you have another girlfriend kind of on the side, as long as you're not like super vocal about it. And as long as you like kind of like me more. Um, yeah, because we're just like really cool about it. So yeah, welcome to Podmark Guard. I'm Andrea Gazetta. Um, and I'm just really cool. And I'm just like really chill. So it's totally fine. I will accept any treatment oh as goodness. long as you give me some small measure of approval. Thank you. <laughs> I was about to say, I refuse to let our pod, our podcast be gaslit into ignoring its feelings. I, re, I relate too hard for, to this joke to let it continue. I can't. I can't guess and it got too real. We've That's all been the so cool girl. Funny. We've all let a dude have a gal friend over and sleep in his bed. And we're like, oh, yeah, but you just because there was nowhere to sleep and you guys are like good friends. And it was like totally fine, even though you're out of town. And then <laughs> as soon as you guys break up, they start dating. But like you're just so cool and chill with it, you know? <laughs> I'll show you I'll show you how not chill I am. I was once like serious like seriously dating but not at all labeled with mm, someone. Okay. Like just like very like you know what this is situation and a girl came into town to stay the night with him on a night that like he knew I was coming over. Like we've been playing he they've been planning this house party like whatever. It wasn't like, "Oh, I showed up and like, you know what I mean, blew your spot." Mm-hmm. Like yeah. you knew I was coming and a girl that was with us at the party um like pulled me to the side and was like, "Oh my gosh, like are you okay? Like do you want us to leave the party? Like if you want us to leave, we can leave." And I looked her dead in her eyes and went, "Grab a beer. It's going to be a fun night." And just <laughs> ruined that guy's night oh, oh shit hell yeah wait what? but yeah i'm i am not good at being cool the only time i've been cool was one time a guy dumped me for a roller derby girl that was bigger than me <laughs> and and that wasn't me being cool as much as there was literally nothing i could do about it like she literally picked up the guy i was dating and just walked away into his bedroom and i was like i think we're done like I think she picked him up. <laughs> yes, I have like, picked up men before, and they oh, do not like it. Men that I'm dating. They, well, he was like a little bit taller than me, but it was like straight up on some snoo snoo shit for anybody that likes Futurama. And it was like I have no dog in this fight anymore. I lost. I just lost fair and square. And so I guess like me being chill is just being like I conceded. I wasn't mad. I was like, this is hilarious. How could I possibly be mad? What just happened? So it's that, almost, that was okay. It's almost like an act of God. Like if you have a chihuahua and you're walking it and an eagle takes it out of your hands, like that you can't control it. Like let that go. <laughs> Yeah, she just swooped in and stole my dick away like a bigger predator. And I was like, yeah, you know, I get it. I rolled on my belly. (laughs) If this was like an episode of National Geographic, it'd be like, and the smaller female knows when she's beat. (laughs) Just Just me at a campfire shrugging with a PBR. Yeah, (laughs) she'll have to let her have this one. (laughs) She will live to fight another day. Just me going to my car alone. 
<laughs> so funny. Oh my god, oh what my artist god. are we covering today, you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we are going to be covering Mark Rothko. Yeah, Hell wait, yeah, Jordan, dude. did you say your did you say your name for the podcast podcast part? Uh, I don't think any of us did. I think you just said this is Spot Punk Guard, and then we started talking in National oh, Geographic, and then we went into the Cool Girl riff. That's why. I'm oh my sorry. God. I'm. I mean, I'm Katrina. If you don't know by now, by episode three. <laughs> If I mean, what if they don't... start in the middle? <laughs> no, that's totally fair. That was... <laughs> I just want everyone to know uh, that Jordan is about to tell you a bunch of amazing information about Rothko. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. I'm Jordan Lee Williams. Uh, or as my mother still calls me to this day, Jordan Wee Williams. I'm a tiny little leprechaun. Which is ironic uh, since your given name is Jumbo Shrimp. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, I'll never let it go. Oh, no one ever does. It's uh, it's my life. Um, <laughs> so I actually, yeah, we went to the Chicago Institute of Art, Art Institute, something like that. The, the famous one with the big lions. Uh, and I accidentally cleared out the Rothko exhibit because I was quietly weeping uh, oh. in a room oh. full of strangers. And I thought it was going to be a gas-related incident, so this is much cuter. No, me too. <laughs> you just like no, pumbed it. I was just quietly weeping, and people gave me my space, which I appreciate. Uh, That's, the only you know thing what? silent and deadly about Jordan is her tears. Exactly. No, it, it'll truly clear out a room. Like, especially in Chicago, they're like, we don't want to deal with feelings here. Fuck that. Oh yeah, no, nobody was gonna. Nobody was having any of it. Uh, so <laughs> I'm just imagining a teamster in the museum, like warning other people, be like, "Yeah, hey, don't waste your time." There's a girl crying in there. <laughs> Everyone's just like <laughs> avoiding the exhibit. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's very. I like that very much. Uh, so should I do sources now or at the end? What's our What's our take on that? You can do it. I mean, like, yeah, do I'll just do it now. Want. I'll just yeah. do it now. So I have a lot of sources for this one uh, because I've written a lot of papers about uh, Rothko. And uh, so American Masters on PBS, there is a great uh, Rothko episode. Uh, the MoMA has an excellent artist bio. Uh, Tate Britain, Great Art Explained, which is about the Seagram murals, which we'll get to. Uh, Wall Street Journal, Mark Rothko's son remembers his father. PBS American Masters podcast, season four, episode three. It, the title is Artist Mark Rothko, and that's a great one. Uh, and it's Rothko's kids talking about a documentary that they made. Uh, this one... I've watched about four times and it makes me so emotional is a Simon Shema's power of art video about Rothko. And I would highly suggest that if you uh, are interested, 
watch his videos. They are phenomenal. Um, you can find the Rothko one on Vimeo, on YouTube, in parts, and the whole thing. Uh, then I used Rothko Paintings Chronology from TotalHistory.com, uh, National Gallery of Art from Mark Rothko, uh, early years, and then the National Gallery of Art, Mark Rothko Classic Paintings, uh, and then RothkoChapel.org. So those are Aww. my sources. They will be in nice. the description of this episode. Hell yeah. Nice. Way to source. And let's do a screen share because I like to I love it. show... Let's get like that beautiful screen footage. Slideshows. <laughs> I don't know why it makes me think of that. Of what? The, the beautiful the bean beans. footage. Oh. <laughs> Legit, Katrina, oh. as a child, that was always hilarious to me because I'm like, this makes no sense. Why does that dog have secrets? What's happening? Yes, and I <laughs> love... Like, as someone who studied advertising in college, I love how they, like, pseudo-break the third wall in that campaign. I hope they got awards. Like, there's ad <laughs> awards. I hope that they got one. It's so silly. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome, dude. Also, Keith's nickname is cracking me up. <laughs> yeah, so we were talking about Mark Rothko, or as Keith calls him, Sad Boy Cubes. Uh, and that's how he identifies him. <laughs> Which sounds like a great rapper name. Like, yes. like a soft rapper. Like if, like if Schoolboy Q named Kid Cuddy, he would be Sad Boy Cubes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love And it. we will get into why uh, Keith calls him Sad Boy Cubes. Because Keith, as much as I talk on this podcast, uh, Keith has to listen to me constantly talk about art. So... And that's really the uh, reason we started this podcast is because we just wanted to give, him, to a give break. him a break. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he needed it. He needed it. Uh, he he got a week of not hearing about the dollhouse while we were in Chicago because I was not near the dollhouse that I'm building. And we were on our first layover back. And I was like, yeah, I'm really thinking I got to I got to start on this door. And, and I was like, oh, it's starting again. Sorry, babe. <laughs> we're not even back in the state of California. And I've already got plans. <laughs> If you're within one time zone of the dollhouse, you start talking about it again. In fairness, though, I bet that the reverse is true where he's like, oh, I got this great script idea for a can of baked beans. And you're like, "Okay, okay." (laughs) It's uh, he just wrote for battle bots. So it's a lot of robot robots. Yep. Uh, That's great. Um. I have my second note of the day. I wanted to include this photo of Rothko because I enjoy it. I like his glasses. Uh, And I will cry again during this episode, but I'm not going to apologize for it this time. This photo. Oh, you shouldn't. This photo makes so much sense when you say sad boy cubes because he looks so sad. It's just a black and white photo. He's looking downcast. He's his face is towards the photo, but he's looking down, so he's not looking at the viewer. And he just has a big bald head, and he looks like he's contemplating every bad choice he's ever made. Yeah, he looks like the guy who plays Dave's dad. For anyone that play watches Dave on FX, he looks <laughs> like the actor that plays his dad a lot. <laughs> 
he uh he definitely he's he just he looks slumped in this photo. It is hard to find a photo of Rothko where he does not look sad. Uh and we'll get to why. So oh, no. uh let's see. I want to before we go to the next photo, talk about his early life. Um he was born Marcus Yakovlev Yak wow. I practiced this. Marcus Yakov <laughs> Yakovlevich. There it is. Damn. Nailed it. (laughs) He was born Marcus Yakovlevich Rothkowitz. Oh, wow. Rothkowitz. It could be Rothkowitz. Uh, Just depend. I mean, it is Russian, so I think it's Rothkowitz. Okay. Um, his name was not anglicized until 1940. So he did not change his name to Mark Rothko until he started in a specific art style. So he had already been painting by the time he changed his name to Mark Rothko. Uh, and it wasn't until he had kind of honed in his style that he changed that name. Uh, but I have he was some guesses. Born... <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, right now, I have some guesses about why he may have changed his name in 1940, but I'm going to hold on to that because I'm not going to jump on all your slides this time. <laughs> I appreciate you, my love. <laughs> so I'm ready. Uh, <laughs> so he was born on September 25th, 1903. Uh, his family immigrated from, and he was Russian. He or He was a Russian Jew. Um, his father, he described as a Marxist who was violently anti-religious, but Mm. after they immigrated to the United States, his, uh, no, no, no. It was when he was young, about six, his father started being more involved within the church and, so Rothko was sent to temple and he was sent to um, to school. But his father was very worried about Rothko's older brothers being drafted into the Russian Imperial Army. Mm. So he moved the family to the United States. But he died very soon after the move um, of colon cancer. And so... His Rothko's mother was a single mother and she worked a cash. She worked like a, as a cashier um, and Rothko sold newspapers at a friend of the family's warehouse to help support the family. Um, Mark Rothko spoke Lithuanian Yiddish, Hebrew, Russian, and then later learned English. So he spoke four languages, uh, which I'm always, that's just incredible. Uh, Major turn-ons. Yes, absolutely. People that are fluent in other languages. Hot. While we look at this photo of him. (laughs) The Uh, saddest boy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so his father was a Marxist. um, And that, I do believe, influences the trajectory of Rothko's life. Uh, I'm going to jump around just a little bit on this part. Um, His father was a Marxist, and I do believe that that 
affects the trajectory of Rothko's life because after he, when he's a young man, he starts attending uh, he starts attending meetings of the International Workers Organization. Um, and that is a revolutionary organization that is anarchist. So he so he attended a lot of meetings of revolutionaries and anarchists. A lot of people think that that is where he really built up these strong oratorial skills. And he is a majorly quotable person uh, and... That is why people think because he was going to these meetings and he was very accustomed to these kinds of meetings because of his father. So he uh, used a lot of that to defend surrealism. Hmm. I just found that an interesting. uh, That's where he started writing about art was with surrealism. And you can definitely see it in the way that he talks about his art he attended Yale and dropped out after two years because he found it elitist and racist uh, and I don't disagree Hell with yeah, him dude. <laughs> he started a satirical journal while he was there with another student uh, and they called it like the Saturday evening pest or something or the Yale review sweet. pest it was yeah very cool um So he ends up, he drops out of Yale and he's working in a warehouse district. He has a friend who goes to the Parsons New School of Design and he takes a figure drawing class with this friend. And he said that that was where he fell in love with art. That was when he became an artist. Oh, Um, I thought you were going to say that was where he fell in love with titties. And I was like, yeah, dude, I get it. (laughs) as a former nude model who has gotten asked out by students after drawing sessions it happens please don't do that to your nude models it's fucking weird oh yeah no that's that's super yeah did you guys see me about starting on an uneven playing field right it's like you've already seen me naked you stared at my naked body for an hour and now you want to go get coffee? No. Yeah. The funniest <laughs> I don't even thing know about what that it. Duck looks like. Right? The funniest thing about it is I was just 18 and the dude who asked me out was like, Do you want to like go grab a beer or something? I was like, I'm 18. Like I can't. He's like, Oh, well, like maybe a coffee or whatever. I was like, I have a boyfriend. Bye. <laughs> But it's super weird. I'm a cool girl. Um. I'm just like a really cool girl. And just because you saw my vagina while I was doing a backbend during your drawing class doesn't mean that these titties are for you. Okay. Thank you. We're finding out how flexible Andrea is. If anybody wants to I can't to do a backbend anymore. <laughs> That's no, what the on. Patreon We're to the Patreon. It's just me doing a backbend. <laughs> In a unitard, Andrea. If you're welcome, there is. uh, We have to figure out what tier Andrea doing a backbend is, but (laughs) it's whichever one allows me to get health insurance to pay for my back breaking after that backbend. There's, there's a covered California tier of our Patreon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I'm gonna miss health insurance so bad, you guys. Yeah, oh, it's I overrated. Do it's uh, you know, you're fine. The clinic. I do want to put in the chat. 
I do want to put in the chat a link to David Paymer, who is the actor that Rothko looks so much like. Oh, you're so right. Yeah, does no, no, he that look absolutely like him? does look like him. Yeah. Oh my God. That's crazy. Right? That's exactly like him. <laughs> That's so I, funny. I'm casting his movie. I mean, it's hard to tell because he's smiling in this photo and I haven't seen Rothko <laughs> smile yet, but. Yes. If you cover up that, his mouth, you're so right. <laughs> So I've moved our slide on to some photos of Rothko in the studio. Uh, I also included these because most of the photos of him are of him smoking. And I just, I love Rothko so much. Uh, He chain smokes like my dad. He dresses like my dad. Uh, He paints with the, the emotional intensity of me with no antidepressants i uh really enjoy him surprise rothko is jordan's dad (laughs) that's how we got here (laughs) when i was a kid i thought red green was my stepdad so (laughs) he looks just like him third grade very i was when i was in third grade everyone thought chris tucker was my dad so that's the (laughs) i've ever came out (laughs) I hated Rush Hour. Um, <laughs> that's that's hilarious. Before we get into the intensity with which he paints, I do want to lay the groundwork for his early influences. Um, so he starts taking art classes at the Art Students League uh, at Parsons New School of Design. And he takes classes with some artists who are very controlling and they don't allow a lot of a lot of exploration which was not how he wanted to use art but then he ends up taking a class by Max Weber whose most famous piece is Chinese restaurant now Max Weber was an analytic cubist uh, and to give that some timeline and maybe give people some uh, give people some I can't remember any words anymore you guys context thank you (laughs) Uh, Picasso started analytic cubism so we're the painting this looks like uh, if Picasso did an MC Escher yeah definitely definitely so that's the that is the idea behind analytic cubism basically so what you're looking at is a table chairs and the floor the floor here the ceiling the restaurant door uh, but it's from every angle that you could see it from. So you're looking at it from the side, the top, below, and straight on. So it's a multi, It's a, it, but it's a lot of squares. I want to break down that Rothko's influences, spoiler alert, they're all a lot of squares it's and emotions. It's because they hadn't invented the circle yet, and that's really the problem. geometry just was not that big yet yeah uh so max weber was seen as a living repository of modern art history because he had been involved in the french avant-garde movement which was picasso which was all of these french artists who were breaking down the ideas of what a painting 
is and what perspective could mean. Mm. Uh, so he's one of Rothko's mentors. And then I do want to talk about Rothko's early influences because I do think that it's important to add the context of why a painting looks the way it does and how an artist's work evolves to the point of where we know him. So uh, Mark Rothko's early influences were German Expressionism. Wait, I did it backwards. Sorry, guys. Uh, Mark Rothko's early influences were... I didn't practice this one. Do you guys have any idea? Georges Ruault. I was going to say Ruault. It's so many vowels. I'll go with I'll go with George Ruault. It looks uh, French. like Ruault. So Ruault was an expressionist <laughs> and a fauvist. Now, fauvism mm. means wild beast, mm-hmm. and it was a style where the artists were ridiculed. They were called fauvists as an insult, but they loved it. That was their favorite thing. So that's some punk rock about- shit. Exactly. Yes. It sounds sexy as fuck. Yeah. Oh yeah. The wild beasts. Well, because the, yeah. the critics at the time were said that their work looks like it's made by wild beasts because uh. the color is unnatural. It's vibrant. It's, unsettling uh like in this painting the water is red and green and blue we're looking at a landscape uh that i believe is made with oil pastels um and you can really see this looks very violently rendered um it's almost like it's almost like impressionism but with a higher saturation of color so instead of those like Mm. soft like Oh my God! Watercolory like feeling. Water. Oh my God! It's like it's like uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like yes. uh, every scene when like the devil comes on screen or like the bad guys here or whatever. Because there's like heavy contrast. There's the black and the red and like these bursts yes. of blue, but it's still sort of an impression of a landscape or animal or whatever they're painting. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And so um, Rowalt did a lot. He also was not interested. Like the Fauvists as a group were interested in playing with the idea of perspective and how it does not matter. So all Fuck of perspective these, and his all of these, All of these artists who influenced Rothko were of modernity so Mm. these are all artists who came after the invention of the camera and the invention of the camera led to so much exploration of what is the point of art because now we have this tool that can faithfully render what the world looks like so uh, most artists they turned inward and a lot of these movements were okay well I already have this tool that can faithfully render the world. So why don't I faithfully render what I'm feeling? Why don't I explore? And and I mean, that was a huge thing in analytic cubism was why does it, you know, I'm going to break this down into every perspective. It does not have to Mm. be something that is a look into a world. This is a look into every aspect of a thing. Like, and the Fovis were very much all about just, this is what it feels like. 
Uh, and then as well as the German expressionists. So he, I couldn't find which specific German expressionists uh, that Rothko said were his influences. Um, but there were two main groups of the German expressionists and Vasily Kandinsky was the founder of Der Blue Rider, and that just means the Blue Rider. Um, most of his paintings included someone on a horse, and as you look at, as Kandinsky's work evolves, it turns into all about music, and so he wanted paintings to be the same experience as listening to music. Huh. Uh, a little bit of synesthesia happening, I bet. Uh, yeah, there is a potential. It also, he wasn't ever, none of his pieces were about specific music pieces. It was all just, okay, well, if music creates this specific feeling, then mm -hmm. why can't art also be an experience like that? Like, this painting does, it does give me the idea. It does make me feel like a jaunt. Yeah. Like it looks like a jolly, like it looks so like the beginning of the song in, that starts Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> so we are looking at an early Kandinsky. Um, this one is Murnau's Street with Women uh, from 1908. And it's a scene of a street. There's a woman in the lower right-hand corner. Uh, but we're looking at houses and trees, and it's all made with these square brush strokes. Um, it's very bright. There's a lot of color. Uh, it's very, it's not blended. Where it's a lot of abstraction, but you're still getting very clear. Okay, that's a house. That's a person. That's a fence. Um, but with these, it's like the textures broad. are kind of abstract. Yes. Well, but the things look like the things they are. And it looks like this might have been based off of some Van Gogh work where they're using, instead uh. of using like an impressionism that is true to the color around it, they're using this sort of like heightened color and heightened sense of form where you're using like these mm. little brush strokes and like each moment, it's almost like pixel art where like each moment is a color. Yes. Uh, and then I also included Ernst Kirchner, uh, Street Dresden, also 1908. Um, and I wanted to talk about this one because this really breaks down German expressionist in a very succinct way uh, because you've got so much more emotion like, this is a very happy, the, the Kandinsky is very happy, it's very bright, it's very colorful, it's airy, it's breezy. This is very claustrophobic, and this is about living in the city, and about the crowded streets, and everyone is wearing a mask, uh, and it's very, uh, ooh. Everyone's That's wearing a mask? That's gonna be my, I fucked up. Uh, so basically, if you think about it, you put a mask on to present yourself to the world. The, you're not presenting your authentic oh. self constantly. So these, if you look closely, the eyes of the women, 
there's no it's all black it's Mm -hmm, all blacked mm -hmm, out mm -hmm. um and then it's very these very large swaths of color that are completely unshaded and just very unblended um and so it's just this like this feeling of anxiety and this feeling of overcrowded and claustrophobic. And then you've got this creepy little girl in the back with her shark hat or whatever she's wearing. It's I that's was just cheating. about to say supposed to make like you uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole yeah, thing like, is about the crowding and the claustrophobic mm-hmm. and the anxiety of living in a pre-World War One <clears throat> world where this is not far out from She where... looks like she's like burdened by something on her back and that car or something that is probably going <laughs> to trolley. hit her in the moment. The trolley. Yes, like there's a lot of stress in this photo. Yes. Or in this and painting. That's, that's definitely the the point. The German expressionist, uh, Munch, Edvard Munch was a German expressionist. And so it's about emotion. It's about feeling. It's about all of that. Um, and then and- his... Correct me if I'm wrong, Jordan, but weren't the German expressionists and I think also Pablo Picasso influenced by the African masks that were coming back at the time? They absolutely were. The imperialists that were fucking up Africa, Uh but they would take like masks and they would take these things from Africa. So when I see these women's faces in this image, they are distorted in a way that reminds me of African masks. Absolutely. Yeah. It is absolutely. And that it, that is actually called Orientalism. Yes. Uh, it's a term in art history where it's the otherness of other countries and colonialism and imperialism. And so uh, Pablo Picasso, Gauguin and Van Gogh were all well. Van Gogh was more influenced by Japanese UKO like floating world prints, but uh, Gauguin is a big problematic. Uh, we'll get into yes, it when absolutely. I cover Gauguin, but problematic um, to say the least. Yes, and so that is definitely what's happening. Um, but with the with the German expressionists and like specifically this guy, it is the focus is the anxiety and just the absolutely. feeling. Um, absolutely. And so the third, ooh, so the third influence he credited was Paul Klee, who was a member of the Bauhaus. And the Bauhaus, uh, if you think of it, think of uh, Piet Mondrian, mm-hmm. and the style which I think I wrote down. Do they have an art exhibit that they do like once every two years or something like that? What do you mean? In Europe, Bow House still. Like, do they have a big art show that they do? uh, They might. Um, The Bow House was run out of town by the Germans. It's by the Nazis. So they were a German art school from 1919 to 1933. Um, They were considered Uh degenerates and most of them fled uh, Nazi Germany and ended up coming to other countries, including America. And we now have the international style thanks to the Bauhaus. We also have Ikea thanks to the Bauhaus. So they wanted to... 
They wanted to combine craft and fine art, and they believed that art should be accessible to everyone. And the thing with the Bauhaus is form and function. They wanted something beautiful that was functional. So it's a lot of straight lines. Uh, They wanted to distill it to that red, yellow, and blue. That is very much Bauhaus. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's these thick black lines. Um, I love the littering. It's cool. Yeah, the architecture that they... um, the architecture that they designed is very open floor plan. There's a lot of moving walls where so you can change the shape of rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, the furniture had more than one function. Yeah, they were, if you think of the Bauhaus, think of form and function. And a lot of this comes from in Europe at the time, in a lot of ways, overpopulation of people like in crowded cities, spaces at a premium. And so they're trying to figure out how to create architectural spaces that serve multiple functions for families to live in. Yes. It's. And they want art to look like that too. So, yeah. Oh yeah, no, and and Piet Montrion is the, uh, he's kind of the big famous one. If you know the, the, Lie black lines, squares, yellow, red, blue. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That is. Uh, and then I included this Paul Klee, which is red and green architecture. Um, now this one is squares and arches in black, red, various shades of like lime green, uh, forest green. There's light and dark reds. Um, and so I. Based on these influences, you can definitely see where Rothko's work is going. You can see how these things, because this is squares and geometric shapes and arches, and it is all uh, about emotion and about abstraction and kind of about the distillation of how far can you abstract something until it no longer looks like the thing it's supposed to. Um, I don't know if I would consider this particular Paul Klee to be total abstraction because he was still trying to show buildings and you can still see the remnants of buildings in certain aspects of these lines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's including some arched forms and he's kind of including parts where you can sort of see like, oh, maybe this is a doorway. Maybe this is a platform a little bit, but yeah. it's still yeah. abstracted enough where it, to it feels like yeah. a grid. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't personally call it total abstraction, uh, but I could see the argument either way. Um, but it's definitely... I think that these styles and these artists are hugely influential to the point where he takes his work and evolves it. So most artists have a manifesto at some point in their careers at this time. This is the 30s or no, this one's from the from from 1943, but uh, Rothko's work, he started as a painter in 1930, and most artists used to do manifestos, and they used to do these huge public declarations, and it was kind of uh, art becoming more of a 
uh, like the Dadaists who were against the war and World War Two or World War One had just ended and this was just this horrifying experience and they just wanted something that, you know, they thought, okay, well, if World War One and mustard gas is where our big rational brains got us, then uh, no more. I'm never Fuck doing anything everything. that makes sense ever again. Absolutely. Uh, but the manifesto has really uh, lost its <laughs> favorability, I guess. Yeah, uh, it's because it's for bombers now. That's why. <laughs> Manifestos are for public shooters and bombers and terrorists I, and whatever else. I miss else. when it was from, we're a, we're a school of artists and we've decided that we don't like you. <laughs> Yeah, we're just like so cool and we're going to like write a manifesto because art is going to save the world and it's like so important. Please yeah. give us money. Yeah. Mass, shooters, mass shooters took a bunch of cool stuff. Manifestos, trench coats. Like there's a lot of stuff that's Guns technically cool that has a stigma now. Right? Oh yeah. No, Rude. it's sometimes Rude. I I see and it just hurts my feelings because I'm like, do you guys know that manifestos were around for like 150 years before we ruined it? And everyone's <laughs> like, shut up, Jordan. Nobody cares. <laughs> Actually, manifestos used to be like kind of a big deal. It's so funny. They, you know, we used to have hope, and uh, so this one is a letter co-written with Adolf Gottlieb and Barnett Newman in 1943 uh, to the New York Times, which now, if we heard that there was a letter co-written to the New York Times, uh, we would assume that it was like 9-11-2 Electric Boogaloo. Uh, <laughs> or the son of Sam. Yeah. Yeah, like, exactly. Some sort of bizarre uh, serial killer. Yeah, so... Um, I included this quote, and like I, I mentioned earlier, Rothko was an incredibly quotable artist, and it was because he spent so much time distilling his work and really explaining it, like, in a way that still... Rothko talked about his work like an art historian. I really enjoy it. Uh, he, My favorite thing he's ever said was probably... Uh, if you just like the colors, you don't understand it and you're missing the point. It's uh, <laughs> mm, rude. Hurtful. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Andrea. Uh, it is a widely accepted notion among painters that it does not matter what one paints as long as it is well painted. This is the essence of academiaism. There is no such thing as a good painting about nothing. We assert that the subject is crucial and only that subject matter is valid, which is tragic and timeless. That is why we profess a spiritual kinship with primitive and archaic art. It does reek of Orientalism. Uh, it's definitely, Absolutely. yeah, that last bit does really feel uh, pretty othered. Um, I did include it. I could have left it out as just uh, whatever, but I did want to talk about like this is this is 1943, and the idea of the other is nothing new. Like it's we've already got m centuries of art history that are made up of using other people's culture to further Western art. 
Well, I think what's really interesting about the way that they're phrasing it and what they're talking about at the time is if you read anthropology or like people like, oh, I went into the Congo or whatever and I studied the people that live there. Like by its nature, anthropology is racist because it is viewing through a white lens a different civilization as somehow less than Um, Uh but something that they're connecting to and what they're tapping into is the idea that art exists on a spiritual level to people in other cultures in a way that it didn't really anymore in western art because by that time western art was in many ways a way to show wealth and power and so the difference of showing wealth and power versus showing a more raw sense of spirituality and the art being actually connected to ritual and spirituality in other cultures is something that they felt like the the art in the western world was lacking and wanted to sort of poach and recreate in western art but by phrasing it as sort of this new (laughs) idea that white men discovered which is very interesting yeah no it's uh it's i i think that that was no i think that was beautifully said i don't know that i have uh, a lot to add to that part of it is that i think you you summed it up really well um i think it's something we don't talk enough about in western art history and so i think part of again this is why we're making this podcast is because i think that full context re-examined is really important when we talk about these artists yeah anyway (laughs) (laughs) anyway so katrina's been quiet (laughs) katrina's been real quiet i want to make sure she's still good yeah i'm just like drinking this kombucha and trying to figure out what the fuck this manifesto means uh (laughs) i'm really glad you asked because i feel like that like because i feel like the end is kind of like a backhanded not compliment but being like oh like i love that for you like that (laughs) it's so weirdly put (laughs) yeah it's i mean it is an excerpt from a longer letter um basically Uh the the gist of the rest of it is that um is what Andrea said was that there's there's very little emotion behind Western art at this point. Um, it's very oh. we've gone through futurism. We've gone through all of these uh, very much industrial styles of art. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is there's th- that that line. There is no such thing as a good painting about nothing. Uh, so there's just no life to a painting if it's mm-hmm. not about something. Which I get, but also well, what you're saying, Andre, it's kind of like something that's been recreated over and over again, which is like building uh, all of this comfort around you in terms of like evolution as a civilization and then eventually devolving or going back to something that is 
less industrialized and being like, this is it. Like, this is what real, like, it's like people going back to Africa now and being like, yeah, like I'm going to experience the real shit now. No. And like every 50 years and maybe not even that long in art history, that is exactly what happens. The Renaissance, the Renaissance comes about because ancient Greek and Roman statues and philosophies are rediscovered. And they're like, oh, life was perfect back then. It was simpler. As humans, we are constantly looking at the past and going, no, Uh that's when it was good. That's when it was good. Uh But I think at this point, we should all admit, no, (laughs) if if, if every human is constantly looking back in time and going, Mm -hmm. that's when it was good. And then you look at the humans they're looking back to and they're looking back going, that's when it Mm -hmm. was good. It's just all nostalgia and romantic notions. Right, the right. Only and reason, how you're remembering it with time, yes. The only reason you think that it was better during Roman times than today is because you don't have to smell what it was like at Roman times. Yeah, because exactly. you don't remember. Yeah, you, you were there. Don't know. You just have an <laughs> exactly. idealized version in some dumb stories that whoever won the war told you. Like... All of Uh history is through the lens of whoever wins. And so you think like, oh, everything was so great back then. And we have all these Mm -hmm. great stories. It's like this motherfucker was just taking Mm -hmm. people's heads off for no reason. And Mm -hmm. like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you guys know where Rothko's work ends up going with the color fields and how Mm -hmm. it's these. Yeah big squares of color that are kind of undulating and blending and and but no artist is fully formed in their style and the first time I saw this it blew my mind uh so this is a Mark Rothko from 1938 it's called Entrance to Subway so he used to do a lot of abstracted figurative work where wow. this is very clearly a subway uh, platform. You've got yeah. the little, the place where you pay for your tickets. You've got the attendant. There are people walking up and down the stairs. Is um, this in New York or is this in San Francisco or do you know what uh, New city? York. He was living okay. in New York at the time. Um, okay. Yeah, he was living in New York. A lot of artists end up... Uh, before you get into like contemporary, most artists kind of traveled in these circles and they ended up, uh, artists working within the same styles kind of were just running through the same circles. Um, Absolutely. That, I mean, that continues to happen today with, depending on what art school you go to, what professors you have, like the art school Mm. I went to. Every single person from the drawing department draws like the two art professors who are married that are the drawing department. So it's like yes. That's so when funny. people graduate, you're like, oh, I know you're doing this. Like, it, you know, yep. when people uh. graduate and then they sort of have to come into their own style again because you've been taught that, like, this is what is good or this is yes. who I look up to and this is what I want to emulate. And as someone who even in art school hated being told what to do I would often get in trouble for being like I think this is dumb and I don't want to do it Andrea where's your manifesto 
You oh remind me so much of artists from like the 20s and 30s. It's definitely <laughs> like school sucks. I hate this. I'm doing my own thing. The I definitely can suck it. I had a therapist. I had to see a therapist when I was in art school because I was going to drop out because I hated being there so much. And my therapist was like, I think you're too punk rock for art school. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> fuck the man. <laughs> fuck academia. Fuck all this shit. Who gets to decide? I get to decide. Like, I was just very upset. Andrea was diagnosed <laughs> as punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> That's a therapy <laughs> diagnosis, baby. <laughs> take two capitalisms and call me in the morning <laughs> oh my god i love this so much yeah uh, i was so a lot this this painting you can already see i mean you can definitely see the influence from the Bauhaus, from the german expressionist from paul klee from roald Absolutely. Uh, but this one you can start to see the groundwork of where his paintings are eventually going to go because Mm -hmm. even in this scene where it is very clearly people and a subway station and a ticket attendant and all of this there are these large squares throughout that are just large swaths of color and so Mm -hmm. we're already working in these large swaths of color Mm -hmm. um this is the it's hip to be square generation so that makes a lot of sense to me (laughs) Damn it, Andrea. <laughs> Don't want any but of that yeah, jazz cigarettes. Even the forms of the bodies are square. Yeah, definitely. Like there's people, but they're square people, kind of. Yes. They um and that I mean that's very much he he is working towards total abstraction and uh it's i mean this is a pretty early piece so the figures are still readable as figures it's a they're Mm -hmm. they're in space there is a a perspective to this work that you can see like okay that's the back wall i'm standing here i'm a part of this scene looking in Um, everything makes sense in relation to the space that it's occupying. So the timeline that I set up, I I didn't want to go piece by piece and and really bog it down with this transformation into total abstraction that Rothko eventually gets. So uh, this one is called Hierarchical Birds, and it's from 1944. Um, And Rothko was very interested in mythology and religion Mm. and the stories that we tell ourselves. But in this one... As his work is starting to evolve, you're starting to lose that figure in space aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this one, there's really no perspective. It's very flat. Um, You have three distinct color bands as the background. Uh, And so, again, we're working towards these ideas of total abstraction and we're working towards these ideas of what would become known as the color fields. Um, And. This almost reminds me of the old Dutch paintings of like fowl hanging by the legs or whatever. With yes, like, so those are called manitas. Yes. This is like dreamy folk art mm-hmm. almost. Yes. It makes me think of. But it's Absolutely. almost like a shades of white palette. Like it's like the colors shell. are so light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. In terms yeah, of it's... things that I know of him later, it's like I've never even seen anything from him. That was figurative, right? Yep. 
most that had things in it that were recognizable or were this light yes um and it's it depends on the gallery because as his work evolves and as his work uh kind of solidifies and then as it further because he was constantly exploring the ways that he painted he was constantly exploring the ways in which people interact with his art and he was also constantly exploring how these pieces were an expression Mm -hmm. so his work really does evolve into uh, kind of these sections of mood eventually. Um, But hierarchical birds, I mean, you've already got like that in the right corner could kind of maybe be a butterfly. Um, I'm sure if we read the the story, because this is based on mythology, um, mm-hmm. that all of I these think it's a bird ghost. Fall. Yeah, probably. Bird it probably flag. is. It looks like, a, it looks like if a, you killed a bird and then it was in a sheet. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> but so in six years, we've really gone from like, okay, these are figures in space to, okay, yes. there's no space for which these figures occupy. Absolutely. Um, yes. And then once we get to 1948, and that's just mm. four years Whoa. later, this is what is known as multiforms in the Rothko evolution. Okay. Um, Hold up. Different theory. Yeah. What if... He just lost his glasses. <laughs> and he didn't want I can Rothko. debunk that theory because I have a lot of photos of him in his studio wearing his glasses. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I just, you know what? I'm just no, spitballing here. Just spitballing here. I definitely, Andre. I definitely agree. Uh, it's so these multiforms, um, we have reached total abstraction. We mm-hmm. are here. Yeah, Andrea wants to blame Big Bifocal for this. But... <laughs> So I've been kind of debating at what point to bring up the larger context of Rothko within the art world. Um, And I think now that we've reached total abstraction, this is a great point to talk about abstract expressionism. So that is the school of art that he ends up being assigned to. He never considered himself an abstract expressionist. Um, I think that he was much more interested in surrealism and would have called himself a surrealist. Mm -hmm. Uh, But abstract expressionism includes people like Jackson Pollock um, and Lee Krasner, who is much less well-known, and Helen Frankenthaler, who is also much less well-known. But it is a total abstraction. It is all about emotion. It is all about the experience that you have. Um, It is these... It gets a rap as being this jaded kind of thing uh in hindsight because of how so many of these artists did meet their ends and you know Jackson Pollock was an asshole he his work was revolutionary for the time he has to get accolades for that um that he took a paint took a canvas off the wall and painted on the floor 
unfortunately, we now know that his wife, Lee Krasner, was sharing a studio space with him and was probably already doing that years before he started. So uh, that's a different episode that I will be doing. And you can come for me all you want. But Jackson Pollock stole his fucking style from his wife. And then after he died, she cut up all the paintings in their shared studio and started making collages. Uh, Fuck uh, yeah, uh. she did. Get your power back, girl. People were pissed. Uh, I'm sure they're like, that's so valuable. That's worth so much. It's like, no, this is all a construct and all of the value that you place in these things is imaginary. Like it's, I don't know. I, I have really strong feelings about like, yeah, I make art. Yeah, it's worth a lot to me, but also it's so subjective absolutely Mm. um and with jackson pollock and this is the huge difference within even just one art movement jackson pollock uh you know we started this episode with uh sad boy cubes but jackson pollock was basically i'm mad about my dad so i jack i jerked off on this canvas like it is he had no interest in it being an experience he wanted it to be this is about me i'm not explaining myself i'm not explaining my work i don't care if you like it i don't care if you experience it and rothko was so vocal about the fact that he wanted his work to be an experience. And he made Mm. sure that galleries had spaces where you could sit and really sit with his pieces. And he said that the best way to see a Mark Rothko was 16 inches away from the Mark Rothko. Mm -hmm. Look, this might be the paint thinner talking, but this painting is taking me to a higher place. It absolutely, you can see the movement and the, there's so much going on even in a totally abstracted piece. Um, You've got squares, you've got these shapes that are kind of rounding out the corners, you've got these dotted lines and, and they call them multi-forms because there was a period where he was painting with all of these different shapes and it wasn't those distinct color fields, which Mm -hmm. is those squares, but if you actually right. look at this a Roscoe. Oh, I was just going to say it does have, like, I know it's abstract, but this compared to other ones, like you're saying, when the squares get bigger, it does feel like a space to me. Mm-hmm. Yes. It has, like, a warm glow to it, and, like, it look like it's abstract but it looks like it could be a dressing room like it looks like there's, Absolutely. like, a center, and there's, like, a like light wise there's kind of a focus i don't know yeah it definitely feels like to me like people around a fireplace or something or like there's ah, like yeah i can see that too a warmth the colors he's using there's like this bright orange sh- sh- shape in the middle and then there's like red around it that almost looks like brick or people sitting around there's like a, a glow to it yeah and it's like soft pinks and mauves like to me, it's like a dressing room when the show's over. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> like a green room kind of deal. Was chaotic, but now it's like over. People yeah. are chilling. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jordan, is he starting to paint on unprimed canvas at this point? Uh, you know, I actually don't. Uh, I don't know. I have a little bit in the notes about his. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I've gone so far off my notes. I don't know where I am in them. Um, <laughs> no, you're fine. But also, I'm what just is talking that from to do? memory. 
Um, yeah, but what does that have to do with anything well, unprimed canvas? So the thing about when you paint on unprimed canvas, the paint bleeds into the fabric in a different way than if there's a primed oh. surface. So okay. when you're when you paint on unprimed canvas, you can get sort of this like glow effect by using soft washes. Um, mm. It is less archival generally if you're using oil paint, but it does create beautiful effects, especially if you start in acrylic and then put oil over it because you can get these like soft blended effects. Okay. So I don't actually know. And if you do know if he was painting on unprimed canvases, um, because what I found, the information I found about his painting techniques at this point was that he diluted his pigments. He was painting in oil um, and he diluted his pigments and was applying paint in very, very thin overlapping glazes. Um, And it wasn't until the 50s that he started doing thin washes and was working in both oil and egg-based mediums. Mm -hmm. Egg? Yeah. Yeah. Egg temper can last a really long time if you're only using the yolk part. The whites? No. The other way? You use the The yolks, not the whites? It's stinky. It's so stinky. huge in the italian renaissance uh it's very big in the italian renaissance because of the climate so you've got these very hot spaces where you can use that kind of uh paint but up in the northern renaissance in uh in flemings in amsterdam and germany they were using oil paints. So that is the big difference between the the Renaissance what? within different countries. Egg tempera is great. It doesn't blend well. So you basically have to mix all your pigments and you kind yeah. of use these like little brush strokes because it pseudo dries really quickly. Yes. Like onto the surface, onto whatever surface you're painting. And then the mm-hmm. paint is only good for like a couple days, even if you're like storing it in a Tupperware mm-hmm. because... Uh-huh. The egg will like rot. Because it's egg. It's gross. Yes. Yeah, because it's, it's so freaking gross. embryo. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah. One of my favorite paintings I made is an egg temper painting, but I don't know where it is. But yeah, it was cool. When oh, it dries, gross. does it smell? No. It's cool when it okay. dries. Yeah. Okay. But it is almost like its own. It's almost like using resin or like a varnish because there's so much. It's so sticky. Yeah. Yeah. And Sorry shiny. for that random side yolk, guys. <laughs> uh, that was solid. Egg. Egg. I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, that Katrina hates puns, supposedly. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. It's like when you get a car and then you start seeing it everywhere, like... Puns happen to me. (laughs) They're thrust upon me. I see them because you bring them to my attention. Without consent. (laughs) Katrina is pun without consent. I am. So this is is what I mean when I say that Rothko was wildly quotable because he does talk a lot about like if you just like the colors and you're not having an emotional experience and you don't understand the emotions behind it, you're asking the wrong questions. You just don't get it. But in talking about his paintings and this 
total abstraction that he's reached. He says, silence is so accurate. Um, and then the other quote that I included was the elimination of all obstacles between the painter and the idea and between the idea and the observer. Um, and so that's what his thoughts on total abstraction were. And he says, <sighs> memory, history, or geometry, which are swamps of generalization from which one might pull out parodies of ideas, which are ghosts, but never an idea in itself. To achieve this clarity is inevitably to be understood. So his concept is basically like, let's pare down what art is to its most basic spiritual elements. And instead of having representation, instead of having, you know, this like, it's this form, it's this thing, it's this that, onto which you this can project moment. your own story. <sighs> He's basically saying like, just be present with the painting. Okay, but because also now I'm realizing now that you've brought up another quote that like, yes, I am drinking a fermented like an alcoholic kombucha, <laughs> but also he just uses a lot of fucking words. So in a many. Way that, like, you know, when someone when you hear someone talking like this and you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, you could have just said that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. This is well, he went to Yale. He's a very smart uh, man. Yeah, four I mean, you're right. I get it. I get it. He knows these words in three other languages. Exactly. So That's fair. I get it. I think in a lot of ways, this is the plight of academia, is that people feel like they need to constantly explain with words the things that they create in order to justify yeah. them. And I have strong feelings that, I think it's good to have a meaning. I think it's important and I think it's good to have that for yourself. But if someone doesn't read your manifesto, they can still enjoy your artwork. And I think that's okay. So I have different feelings about the need for manifestos and artist statements and all that too, because I think that sometimes people rely on that to feel connected to a work that they might not actually be able to connect to. That's absolutely fair. Um, I, the, the point of this quote uh because he was asked about why he went to total abstraction um uh. is the silence is so accurate he because he was constantly asked what does your painting mean why does it look like this what does it mean what is it supposed to represent what are these are why aren't there figures what should these figures look like what am i supposed to see and he wanted to explain like these images that I'm painting are emotions I've removed that that line parrot like uh parodies of ideas which are ghosts is such a yeah. raw fucking line to say about something like just the idea that if I give an indication of what it's supposed to mean I'm gonna taint what you see uh, no so I kind of get that I, I mean, I definitely understand what he's saying about memory and history and things that are so specific. And even like you're saying the time that he's coming out of where people are like places and things and moments and all of that. And kind of like you said, stripping down from that. Um, yes. But it also is ironic to just have this end with the 
main goal to be being understood. And this is technically kind of confusing, but I get it. (laughs) (laughs) But I totally get it now, even with you explaining it a little bit more. But this one, I get more than the other one. The other one confused me straight up. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. I feel like a lot of artists talking about their work get a little confusing. Um, So... Now that we've reached this point in his career, we are at the classic paintings. Uh, And this period started around 1949. um, And this is where we are getting our color fields. And when did you Uh, say he changed his name? He changed his name in 1940. And I was going to say like nine years before this. Did the violent anti-Semitism of that era influence his choice to change his name? I believe it absolutely did. Um, okay. He, yeah, because he did change his name in 1940 and he was already painting and he was already living in New York. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that when it got anglicized, it was, it had a lot to do with that. Because um, mm-hmm. this is a time in 1940, that's a time when visas are starting to i mean they'd been around for a few years before that uh, but they were america was trying to limit as many jews from coming to america as possible they did not want them Mm. fleeing jewish refugees asylum seekers absolutely just Mm. like the nazi party right just like we're seeing right now typical Oh, yeah. yeah. No, they absolutely. I mean, that's where the visa came from, was from trying to limit the number of Jewish refugees who were trying to flee Nazi Germany. Which Um, in the American Constitution, we allow for refugees and we allow for asylum seekers and they are not supposed to be limited because of the way that our country was founded as a refuge for people. But what happened is racism and America decided that like, well, we don't want Jewish refugees and we don't want Haitian refugees and we don't want Mexican refugees. We want the white guys from Canada and sometimes white guys from Europe. So that's why. It's just because they made visas, but they didn't tell anyone that it stands for a very individual select asylum seekers. (laughs) (laughs) This is a very select list. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry. You're going to have to check with the hostess. I don't think you have an appointment. They just hold up. It's like the the card from Family Guy with the shades of skin color on it. And they just like hold it up and they're like, ooh, guess you're going to need a visa. <laughs> At at the at the front of Ellis Island, there was actually just a hostess from Nobu <laughs> telling people that they did not have an appointment. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm so sorry. Um, I'm gonna have to let these people in. <laughs> oh my god! 1949 is when we get our first color field. Um, and this is also when Rothko starts to really solidify the ways in which he interacts with galleries, which does become a point of contention in his career. Um, he wanted benches installed in front of his pieces. He wanted very specific lighting. He had very specific ideas. And I think the best way to sum it up was in 1954, he asked that his largest pictures be installed so that they must be first encountered at close quarters so that the first experience is to be within the picture. So So he's a prima donna. 
he is creating and curating a very specific emotional intimacy with his work mm-hmm. um, that you don't normally get with something that doesn't have eyeballs. I will say the first one that I ever saw had that on the placard and I listened to it and I was like, oh, I'm glad that they like put this information to look at it this way. Yeah. I will say this painting particularly looks like eggs and toast with butter and I'm yes. maybe I'm hungry, yes. but it looks delicious. No, it does. Okay. It does a lot. <laughs> I feel like this is the best time for me to mention to the listeners who I think a lot of you know where this is going, uh, but these two don't. My co-hosts don't know where this story is going. I so. don't. I know nothing about Rothko <laughs> except his paintings, so I'm excited uh, about this. I mean, So here we go. Um, oh, I'm scared. Yeah, it's pretty, it gets... Uh, okay, wait, before we go there, I wanted to talk about kind of the early the early work of the color fields because you guys were mentioning that you have only seen a lot of these darker palettes. And when he was mm-hmm. first starting, there was a good 10 years where his work looked like this. It was very bright mm. and bold. And these there's a lot brighter, of white yeah. and orange and pink. Yeah. And these are uh, the ones that I like, and these are the like the era that's at the Milwaukee Art Museum has a few of these. Ah, uh, okay. Yes. See, I've only seen the more in person, the more saturated ones. Yes, and so earlier in the, and I should explain because I keep saying color field, like anyone knows what I'm talking about. Um, a, the color field is this way of Rothko's paintings where if you they look square from a distance, but if you are actually within this painting, um, there is so much overlap and there is so much bleed on these corners. And it's because of the way that he was overlapping and overlapping and overlapping these glazes. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this one is a good example on the right. It's um, three squares on a background of red and orange. Um, and in the center band, it's white, but you can see the background of orange coming through at the corners. So it's not very harsh lines. This is a very fluid shape. Um, and so that's why they're called color fields is because you can see the interaction. And Rothko mm. said that his paintings were breathing and I part of why I started crying at the Art Institute of Chicago was I was standing looking at one of them and it started moving and I lost it because it was just the first time that I had interacted with a Rothko and felt that connection and felt that emotional intimacy. Um, and it just really meant a lot to me. Something. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jordan. No, no, no. Go, go. I was just um, going to move on to the next part. Something to, so when you see the Rothko's up close, I know from this era at least that he is painting on unprimed canvas. So you, that's part of yeah. how you're getting that like glow effect. And then the okay. way that he's layering the paint, that's part of why it feels like it's moving is because he's going over the same area, but because he's a human being and not a machine, it's a little bit imperfect, you know, the brush strokes yes. are overlapping. And so you get these sort of soft fades 
as the colors interact with each other and it has such a human element to it in a way that a lot of the modernist abstraction at that time especially the Bauhaus where they're almost using a right. slide rule to create squares yeah. I was to about to say shapes. those seem like taped off they're so they absolutely they are yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and so this is such a more human approach that that is yeah. what makes Rothko unique is that you can see the humanity in his paintings in a way you cannot in a lot of the modernists of this time. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the modernists of the time were the because um, he's a contemporary of Jackson Pollock, who mm -hmm. had a very chaotic style. Um, he's a contemporary of Helen Frankenthaler, who would take her canvases and soak the paint in so that it almost bleeds and spreads um mm -hmm. and so these a lot of these artists were not interested in it being perfectly manufactured and perfectly industrial and perfectly perfect um they just wanted that emotion and that emotional clarity mm -hmm. um but what i do appreciate about rothko is that connection and it is that um he wanted the people who view his paintings to have an experience and he wanted to hold their hand through it um whereas jackson pollock again was just aggressive who fucking cares about you this is about me baby i mean jackson pollock <laughs> is really just jacking off painting style exactly yeah like it well, has that energy to it whereas like rothko is like tenderly caressing his paintings you know there's something yes. very soft and loving and intimate about these all right, I'm just forestalling the inevitable. We got to get to the Seagram's paintings. All right. Okay. Is so this like Seagram's ale? Is this like a... a yeah. yeah. Is this a... Is ginger is ale a, ginger a dark ale? period Adventure? of his art? <laughs> it's a pay, It's a restaurant. Oh. Uh, Seagram's oh, okay. restaurant in the Four Seasons in New York. Um, I bet it is the ginger ale, Andrea, or the part I, of the ginger ale company. That's they, what I mean. Yeah, they like might, I bet might they're be connected. That. I yeah. have. I didn't look into that. Like I said, there's uh, no need for you to. This part, <laughs> it really feels like a horror movie where I just know where this is going, and I'm so upset. Um, so the Seagram murals. Oh my God. Tell us. And this is where Rothko's work really does start to darken. Um, so Seagram's was, oh, wrong button. Sorry, guys. Uh, so Seagram's was the restaurant go. in the Four Seasons in New York. And they commissioned paintings. They commissioned seven paintings from Rothko. He ended up, according to a lot of the sources, completing almost 30. Oh, um, wow. Even though they only had the space for seven, um, he did a lot of sketches. This one in particular uh, is red, like a it's a very dark red background. It's a very light red square over that, and then it's two very dark brown squares or dark dark like reddish brown like ochre, um, yeah. burnt umber I would, color. I would call the red uh, the red a uh, 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 light cadmium red, maybe. Okay, okay. beautiful. Oh yeah, like, oh, I agree. It's got more of that like a, mu a muted ox blood. Oh, I don't know. What cat yeah, hey, no, guys. I would say that for like the brown area, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for that one. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, so he 
completed almost 30 of these paintings. They had paid him. I think it was like $1.5 million. So he completes all these paintings. He gets paid. He decides to go to the restaurant and actually see the space that these paintings are going to occupy. And he's watching all these people eating and he's looking at where the paintings are going to go. And they're going to go about 15 feet up in the air along the ceiling line. And we've already talked a lot about how invested in his work being accessible and being an experience. Yeah. Immersive. And he's watching these people just have this fancy fine dining experience And he sends all of the money back to the hotel and tells them they're not getting his paintings. Damn. And this is where the the thing that always makes me cry about Rothko, and I included it on the front of the slide because I thought I could get away with not crying. Uh, He said of that commission, a painting is a living thing, and how cruel is it to send it somewhere it won't be loved? Um, uh, bars, and I just, I just think that that is such a perfect summation of the connection and the emotional intimacy that he wanted to convey in his work. I mean, I feel that way about my own paintings because, like, I can't, I can't imagine sending a painting to a place where someone won't love it because I love yeah. it. Like, I made it because I love it. And it means yeah. something to me. And so, like, if you are if you spend all that time on something and you care about it, like, it's like giving a child away to an orphanage. Like, why? <laughs> like, it's hard. I can't, you know, yeah. that's a hard choice to make. Yeah. So he gave up this commission. Um, and this is when his work starts to really turn. Um, and that's where we start to get these darker color palettes. Um, he starts... He starts painting in so many layers that this the canvas becomes black and mm. you cannot see. And uh, art critics of the time said that it had a velvety texture to it because of how many layers of paint he was putting on this. Dude, these are the ones that I've seen. And in terms of what you were saying, where you could see through colors, it was like I couldn't see anything, but you can see like how many different strokes of dark blue there are or whatever, Mm -hmm. like you're saying, until it's almost black. Yeah. Yeah. So we're looking at number four in 1964. He also, in the 50s, when he did reach total abstraction, he did stop giving the paintings names that might indicate what they are about. And he starts naming Mm -hmm. them just to keep them to basically keep track of them. So a lot of number four, number eight, number 12, number Mm. six, um, untitled with the year, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, Mm. that was pretty standard of the, the abstract expressionists. Um, so this painting, we don't even want to give you a fucking clue what this is about. That's exactly what it is. It's all about the emotion. Um, so I want to talk about the Rothko chapel, um, which is kind of where our story is going to end. Um, I need a little bit of water. It's okay. (laughs) Jordan. Uh, Jordan. <laughs> Rothko makes me so emotional. He is really one of those artists where 
just how desperately he wanted connection and wanted to love the people who saw his work really gets me. <laughs> oh, honey. Jordan's emo for Rothko. I really am. And you can leave that part in. <laughs> hey. Oh, I'm leaving all of this in. I guess <laughs> I'm wondering, Jordan, what was so emotionally scarring for him about giving up that commission? Because it sounds like he got to keep his paintings. And so, like, what changed in him as a person that made him so upset was it just the idea that he's creating things that people don't understand and the feeling of him being misunderstood was so hurtful that Mm. he started going into this darker place I think that he was depressed and I have some pretty good evidence that he was depressed uh Mm. I so I think to answer it uh Mark Rothko killed himself Oh my God. I did not know that. So he killed himself on February 25th, 1970. Um, The Mark, the the Rothko chapel was completed in 1971. Um, Was the chapel underway when he left? He, (laughs) this is one that kills me uh, when people say it like this and that the, the, um, what is his name? The Simon Shema Power of Art video about Rothko is really beautiful in the way that he discusses the Rothko Chapel. Um, it's, it's when someone says like, oh, the paint wasn't even dry on this painting when he killed himself. Because they say it about Van Gogh a lot with the sunflowers, uh, that the paint wasn't dry on the sunflowers. Um, and the Rothko Chapel... He had completed the paintings for it, and they were sent, and then he ended his life. And the chapel wasn't finished until 1971. Um, So the picture here is Rothko, again in his studio, smoking a cigarette. He's got his little glasses on. uh, And he is standing in front of several of the pieces, and you can see that this is a solid black, I mean... He put so many layers and so many dark pigments and so much into this. Um, And this is what the space looks like. And he helped design (sighs) it. He wanted it very specific. He wants low light. He wants this because these paintings in particular, because they are such dark pigment in low light, your eyes do start to move them. There is a lot of movement in these pieces. They do look like they undulate within the space um there's benches it's a very specifically designed space um Mm -hmm. it looks like a church i mean exactly it was supposed to be i mean that's what he wanted his work to be was a spiritual experience was it called a chapel before he ended his life i believe so yeah because he wanted it to be a meditative space um and this is what it looks like with people in it oh wow Um, so you can see the sheer size the sheer scale rothko painted in was huge Mm -hmm. but also if those people weren't listening to someone talk would they all be facing out towards the paintings 
and sitting on those benches. Yes, yes. In this okay, photo, someone's dancing in the middle of the space. Oh, I just, okay. I, see I now. just picked something that showed people using the yeah. space. No, I have um, horrible eyes. Also, <laughs> no, you're good. Um, I just, yeah, this is just to illustrate the sheer scale of anytime I include a picture with people, it's just to illustrate the scale of a word. <laughs> Um, and so it's the, the beauty within, did he like have family or anyone that he had about anything? Okay. Yes. So he was married. He had two children. He had his son when he was 60. So he was an older man (gasps) with a very young son. Um, yeah. And he killed himself when his son was six. Now, and that's, I was going to say the beauty in this and kind of the hopeful ending that I think we need is his son is a huge advocate for the legacy of Mark Rothko. He's written books. He does interviews. um, He and his sister did a documentary and the podcast uh, from... I wrote it down. The PBS American Masters podcast, that season oh, four, episode okay. three, that is actually a Q&A with his children. So you can listen to uh-huh. them talk about growing up with him and growing up in the studio. Yeah. And his son says that he, that Rothko would put out these huge sheets of paper and just let him paint and would never tell him or give him any direction or instruction and would just tell him to do stuff, just have fun Uh and make what he wanted to make. So um, his son is a huge advocate and he says, of Uh course I was going to do this with my life. Of course I was going to, you know, champion my father's work. And I, it's, it's truly heartbreaking, but it's also um, very beautiful seeing the love that he has for his father. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, do you, do we have any clues about why he chose to end his life other than depression? Like, were there any inciting incidents or was it just kind of like a general feeling of hopelessness? I... Uh... <sighs> I mean, this is probably a failing on my part. I can't look into it. I've had a lot of trouble researching uh, that aspect of it. Um, it is a uh, a pretty emotionally taxing uh, way to end your life and to find out that someone died. Like, you know, it's... Uh, Absolutely. And so I just... I. I had to take a break. <laughs> uh and then I I just could not um just as someone who has dealt with with attempted suicide and someone who has dealt with suicidal ideation um it's really hard for me to and I think that's probably why I have such an emotional reaction to artists like Rothko and to artists like Van Gogh where I know what that hopeless feeling is. I know what that disconnected feeling is. I know how it can sometimes feel to not want to go on. Um, And so I, I do think that's why I have that intense 
reaction um but that's also why i have not i i i can't look i can't look to see if he has a note i can't look to see because i just i i don't think i have it in me to know that's okay okay. i will when you were saying earlier andre i was thinking about um just wanting to be understood on that level and the and this is also like uh clearly a thousand percent speculation but thinking about being a jewish man that has like you said changed your name in order to potentially avoid certain you know discrimination in your own life and sitting in a space of that level of opulence and feeling like oh i've been commissioned to do my work i'm being seen on such a respected level like feeling any kind of thing that like from the outside would be oh i've reached a certain level but to him might have been people at this level understand my art Mm -hmm. and then to see like oh they just want pretty squares they don't care about how close people are to it at all or they're not interacting with it in the way that i intended it and the way that it is valuable Mm -hmm. to me Absolutely. Right. And like you said, to have such a grand gesture as to give that much money back, I feel like not like, oh, it would be the one turning point in someone's life that I just learned about for like an hour. But (laughs) I feel like as an artist, it would kind of maybe make you see success and the people that will eventually understand you differently it would be like who am i even making art for if Mm -hmm. the people that have been liking me up till this point like you said if he believes the things that he said in terms of like if you don't if the people just not getting it i do feel like that would probably make you on a certain level want to give up on people i quick note i googled it real quick because i was curious okay um, yeah, absolutely. And he did not leave a suicide note. And the Google says that it was that his suicide was exacerbated by his drinking, which like, of course, access to depressants yeah. and barbiturates are yeah. not good if you're already sad. Um, but no, oftentimes do not help. They do not. But oftentimes those are also the earmarks of people that are already hurting. And so I think that what Katrina says makes a lot of sense to me. If we're, if we're just moving into speculation. Um, yeah. If you give your whole life to an idea and you feel like Mm -hmm. people fundamentally do not understand your artwork and therefore fundamentally do not understand you as a person, it can hard to feel like you even exist. And so I totally get that. Yeah, like I just recorded a special. If I was so amped that someone wanted to play my special and then I went and they were playing it on mute above (laughs) a bunch of people eating, I would be like, oh, wow, you guys don't give a shit about this at all. That would definitely be like, oh, this isn't at all what I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and they gave you $20,000 or something to be like, we're going to play this on loop. And you're like, oh, my God, really? (laughs) And you thought it was a great honor. Right, and And then then you were like, like, this means nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you said, and it would be, oh, what? You just like watching me move around on mute? What the hell? You don't like anything about what I made this for. Mm -hmm. So I can see that, like you said, if someone is also, like you said, possibly 
clinically depressed, even if you're not clinically depressed, if you're drinking, it's gonna freaking bum you out. Like, yeah, no, and I mean, barbiturates and drinking that's a huge self medicating, like, that is someone Mm. who is already on a path. Absolutely, Um, truly felt like a horror story making this slideshow because i love making these slideshows and i was just like oh yeah we're talking about early influences and we're talking about early art and then i got to the seeger murals and i was like oh no i don't want to keep going i cannot keep going oh jordan i mean it's sad but also in a really in a really messed up way as someone who didn't know how this was gonna end I'm not happy in any way that he ended his life, but I am happy that he isn't a monster because I literally was only thinking of him doing like, like, I'm so sorry that he committed suicide, but I'm so happy that he did not molest a 10 year old. Like, that's what I thought. Like, I thought he was going to do something horrible. So he wasn't a horrible person. No, he was a person (laughs) who was hurting. Um, Yes, he didn't hurt anyone. He was just hurting. So as someone who didn't know what was happening, I am oddly happy at the ending of this episode because i still get to like rothko is that fucked up oh my god this is the world we're in sorry everyone um i do think that this is us just forcing ourselves to end on a note happier than rothko ending his life because he was a beautiful sad man that made colors blend together perfectly but also the part of me that even if I'm at like Andrea and I both saw different things in that one painting and I realized that they're all super cool impressionists that like refuse to tell you what they're feeling. But like, I want to know what some of these derived from at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely see the, uh, the emotional change throughout his work. Yes. Um, But, like, there's nothing that tells us what any of these are about, really, at all. Oh, absolutely. Even the titles give no indication. And it's, I think that that is also, that's another completely valid form of human connection, is wanting to know what that looks like, what that means. Why does it mean that? What does it, someone hold my hand and tell me what this means and why it's important and... Even that kind of, I didn't think about it this day until just now, but like the idea of him being lonely and putting up those walls of saying like, if you don't like, if you just like colors, then you don't get it. Kind of being the first layer of him actually wanting someone to ask him. Possibly? I think so. That's such a passive aggressive move of just like, (laughs) yeah. Just, you know, just like, okay, but like, just ask me about it. You know what I mean? Just like, you guys don't even yeah, know like how the, deep I am right now. Like, in my He spirit. has full-on emo tendencies. Like, Absolutely. this is it, abstract my chem. If he had more hair, it would be dyed black and swooped to the side over his eyes. Absolutely. Oh, my... I mean, yeah, I want, I don't know. It does kind of give me that added layer of what I feel like you might be feeling from a closer level, Jordan, of wishing that you could have like 
talk to this person all which I feel like you do we do on all of these levels of of any artist that we appreciate is like if you feel like they're hurting you're like I wish I could have got talked to them and told them like how great what they're doing is or something like that like on some weird fan level oh it's I considering the amount of letters I've written to Vincent Van Gogh I don't even know that it's a fan level thing like I uh Jordan, wait, what do you do? Put them in a bottle and throw them into the ocean? Where are these letters going? They are all written down and hidden in my uh, studio space. I Oh my God, Jordan. started writing letters to him after uh, I tried to overdose. Um, and so a lot of it was just a, like my letters to Van Gogh were a frustrated response to this idea that I feel like gets brought up a lot every few years. Um, he ate yellow paint to be happy. And if he wasn't crazy, we wouldn't have gotten starry night. And I think that that is just perpetuating this idea of the artist has to be in pain to produce things that we can appreciate when yes. he ate yellow paint because it was poison and he was trying to kill himself. Mm, um, yeah. And starry night was painted while he was in the hospital getting better. He was not allowed right. in his studio when he was having an episode because he was trying to uh. harm himself. And uh-huh. I just think that, There are so many examples of, okay, well, this artist killed themselves and therefore they're such a great artist. And it's like, well, maybe if we had taken better care of them, I see a lot of people say, oh, well, if Vincent Van Gogh had been on medication, we wouldn't have gotten these paintings, these amazing masterpieces. You would have gotten more. He didn't owe us them. Right. That's true. I mean, those are the two points. He didn't yes. owe, we, we are not owed someone right. else's work based on their right. experiences. And also, like you don't we get would to have gotten let years. someone suffer for a pretty picture. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and like you're saying, they're not mutually exclusive. Like you can get better. And like you're saying, Andrea, make that art for longer. Because I hear comics will straight up tweet that they're afraid to take medication to make themselves better because they're afraid they won't be funny anymore or that people won't like them as much. And it's like people will say shit like that and not understand that they're perpetuating a real fear in artists to be them, their best, healthiest selves. Yes. And I'm going to say this as someone who has been in therapy for a year, you know, what is not productive or funny crying for five days straight. If I'm crying, I'm not making good art. I'm not making other people laugh. I'm not enjoying my life or being a good version of me. And to think that I have to go through those experiences to create artwork that is worth looking at is bizarre. You're right. Oh, I, as someone who also is a depressed visual artist, I have spent decades, a decade trying to break myself of this idea that if I'm taking my antidepressants, my artwork will not be quality because uh-huh. 
that is such a toxic, horrible idea. Um, we should get but, out of here, guys. And I, <laughs> we should. Yeah, no. Before we do, I though, mean, I do want to say that I and I have multiple friends that I say this to on a semi-regular basis. But uh, thanks for not killing yourself, Jordan. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that you stuck around. Like I know it I think it's my like best joke, magic I trick. <laughs> I tell people this all the time. Like literally I have best friends that I randomly take to be like, Hey, you know what? I'm super glad you're still alive. Cause it would super suck if you weren't. And like, even if that's the only reason like that we, you stuck around long enough for us to start this podcast, like selfishly on board. Oh, hey, you know what? Anything, uh, anything that makes the next episode, not as bad. That's, uh, yeah. that's kind of the motto of my life. Um, <laughs> oh man! So yeah, it's, that was Rothko. Thanks for joining us for this emotional last episode. Absolutely, yeah, I liked it. And before we do leave, though, I do want to uh, just end it with: if you are struggling, if you are hurting, if you're feeling these things, please know that we love you. I don't absolutely. care if I've never met you. I love you, and I think that. If you weren't here, the world would be a crueler, darker place. Um, and so just reach out to someone, even if it's me uh, and you don't know me, just just hit me up if you don't feel like you have anyone else to talk to. Uh, but I promise you that your friends love you. I promise you that what your brain is telling you is not an accurate read on your situation. And it would really hurt if you weren't here. And I will say, mm. as someone who has been very sad before, uh, you will be surprised if you reach out the people that will show up for you. There are definitely times where I'm like, oh, I don't really have any friends or I don't feel like anyone likes me. And then people are like, I like you. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> so mm -hmm. <laughs> thanks to all my beautiful friends of the world. So you guys are great. I love uh. you. And as the rigid realist uh, that hasn't tried to <laughs> self-harm in like at least a couple <laughs> decades, I will say that even if I don't love you and think you're just kind of all right, I still don't want you to end your life that way. I feel like I've been so sad at so many times in my life that I look back now on and think about how much I couldn't see outside of that. Mm -hmm. And yes. like, I know it sounds crazy, but you have to trust yourself like any time outside of that, like one more day, one more anything to like, like you were saying, Jordan, even if you like get yourself to eat a freaking peanut butter and jelly sandwich and that's the one thing you did that day, like the next day will be the day that you're like, oh shit, I fucking ate something yesterday. All right, here we go. Like, yeah, I'm just hyper practical and I've definitely been like Andrea. I've been in the same place Andrea was in and bet that no one was going to pick up. Mm -hmm. I've been sitting on like sitting in bed bawling and been like, I'm going to call everyone's bluff on how not there for me they are. Mm -hmm. So for the people that are like, top tier rigid and still won't reach out um one get over yourself and reach out don't be like me but even if you're still gonna be like me like there's gonna be a time if you push through that you're gonna see the past you and be really really happy that you push through absolutely i guess does that make yeah. sense yeah because yeah. you could start a podcast with your friends where you talk shit about Jackson Pollock about and Jackson what Pollock. would be better. 
It's really, uh, it's exactly where I saw myself. <laughs> In the like, best version. I, I, I absolutely think about that sometimes because it's definitely like where my life is right now. I love y'all. Let's get <laughs> yeah, out of here. You guys too. Yeah, let's get out of here. Uh, Katrina? Oh, I mean, you can do it, Andrea. Kick us out. Oh, man. <laughs> Sign us off. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to Podvant Guard. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we're at Podvant Guard. If we're on Twitter at Podvant. If we're on Twitter. Are, oh, are we also, I fucked up. I see what you're saying. <laughs> I'll do it. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the handles are. <laughs> no, I just realized what you were saying. I was like, you can talk first. I don't care. Um, I'm a cool girl. It's fine. She's a cool girl. Um, thank you all so much for listening to this uh, lovely, heartfelt episode on Rothko. Uh, if you want to hear updates on the new episodes, everything that's coming up, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pavant Guard, which is P-O-D-V-A-N-T-G-A-R-D-E. I had to learn how to spell in French for this podcast. Uh, <laughs> and we'll have information in the links in those bios to our Patreon and whatever other information you may need by then. <laughs> hey, guys. So Andrea here, cool girl, Andrea. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram at Andrea Gazetta or on Twitter at Sundress Comic or TikTok at Andrea Gazetta, yay. Uh, come check me out. Come hang out. Look at art. Let's chill. Let's talk. I love that you're on TikTok. It makes me really happy. <laughs> it really does. I, I uh, fuck with Andrea's TikTok. I am on Instagram and that is it uh i am the goonie bird if you want to see photos of me and the random shit that i get up to and sweet bb girl stitching if you would like to uh see what uh, my dollhouse looks like uh hell yes you do <laughs> yes dollhouse <laughs> updates oh and i forgot but uh me if you like me as an individual um you can follow me at katrina savad which is s-i-v-a-d it's just davis backwards on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, but there's nothing on my TikTok. There's an old video of a bunch of broken stuff in my apartment and then me finding an abandoned dog. <laughs> I think that's the last that's the last video on there. So but everyone yeah, thank who you follows so Katrina much. on TikTok thinks she died. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes, I just found a dog and then didn't post for another month and a half. Just um, like I think the dog yeah. got her. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. We love you. We love you so much. <laughs> love you. Bye. 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 Hey guys, Andrea here. Um, I'm asking for your help a little bit today. Because Jordan, Katrina, and I are all comedians and artists who don't have any experience editing sound, and because this is a sound-based medium, we have asked an editor to help us with our episodes. Um, we had a few issues early on with some of the early recordings, and we're working on getting those sorted out. Um, and 
part of that is just having an audio engineer. So in order to be able to actually pay him and pay him a fair rate, uh, we're asking for your help. We've set up a Patreon, patreon.com slash podvantgard. And our goal is that we can pay him not from our own pockets, but from the resources of the show itself, which means we need your help. Um, we're also planning on starting to release bonus episodes. We'll start with one a month. Um, and as that Patreon rate increases, we'd like to eventually expand that to a bonus episode every week. And the bonus episodes will be more, um, a little bit more loose fit. We'll be covering art, uh, like current events and weird things that happen because there's a lot of like weird stuff going on in the art world right now, um, especially around NFTs, especially around AI. And I think it's really interesting and worth talking about, but we just need to be able to pay someone to edit that bonus content. Um, I would also say that in terms of the time cost, you know, Katrina, Jordan, and I all are supporting ourselves outside of this show. This show takes a lot of time. I'm probably spending at least three days a week with every episode just researching. We're buying books. Um, Katrina's editing the time codes. She's building our website. She's doing all our social media. Jordan is also researching her own episodes. And my goal for the Patreon is just that it can become something that you know we're not looking to get rich I don't think that's ever been our goal I don't think we ever think that could be our goal but what I'd like to be able to happen eventually is that the Patreon can become a way for us to just pay ourselves a living wage for the time that we invest into this show my experience uh, with cult podcast um, is that it's really hard to make a show every single week and not have other financial resources. So what I want is that this Patreon can eventually become a financial resource for us. It can help us support ourselves and it can help us to continue putting the show out so that we don't get burnt out and want to pull our hair out. Um, we love you so much and we think that the show is really important. I personally think that we need more podcasts that cover history and art history from a feminist, anti-colonial queer perspective and that's where we're coming from as artists and as art historians and comedians we love you we love this show thank you so much for supporting it that's again at patreon.com slash and thanks guys <laughs>